Good morning, family. Take your Bibles, if you would, and open to the book of 2 Thessalonians and chapter 2 for our message this morning. As we go through this book, you'll recall that this letter was written just a few months after Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. And it's a follow-up addressing an issue that had come up shortly after he wrote the first letter. And as a result, this material, some of it is is really just kind of supplemental to the first letter. And I realized that as I was preparing the message this week that it would really help if we went back and read and studied the first letter. And a couple of sections of that would really help us today. And uh, actually, we studied this, the first letter, First Thessalonians, about three years ago. And I don't want to spend a lot of time repeating what we did then, but that material is kind of helpful. So what I did do was I went back and took two messages from that series, uh, from the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, and I printed those messages out. And they'll be available in the back for you to pick up if you would like. We also sent them out via email today, Friday, someday. Anyway, we sent them out to some of you. You may have gotten them there. But I'd encourage you to go back and read through those messages. I think it'll help, uh, especially as we deal today with a few terms that you may or may not be familiar with, uh, might be of help. If you're at home watching right now on live stream, you can just email or call the office and we'll send you one. So anyway, just let us know. We'll get one to you either in hard copy or via email. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. You know, in our nation over the last year or so, I think we've all noticed there have been growing division among people over lots of different things. But I've thought in recently that there's one thing that no matter it seems who I talk to, where I'm talking to somebody, different people, there's one thing that everybody agrees on. We disagree about a lot of different things, but everybody agrees on one thing, and that is right now, these are crazy times. The world has gone nuts. And, you know, with with COVID, there are different positions that polarized in many ways on how we're supposed to respond to it, and it has it has complicated everything from work to play, from school to sports. It's complicated eating out, it's complicated social events, it's complicated how we do church, how we meet together, how we worship, how we do ministries. It's complicated even how we do family, just doing family gatherings. And that's made life just crazy. We, as well, just in daily life around, forget COVID, there are just other things. Just We see signs of inflation rising in ways that we haven't seen. If you're not old like me, you haven't, us old people have seen it 50 years ago. Those of you who haven't been around that long, it's it's just crazy. If you get out much, you've discovered that when you go out, you'll find that some of the restaurants or some of the stores that you think you'll go into are closed. They're closed because they can't get workers to keep the place open, uh, even though they're paying salaries, wages that they've higher than they've ever paid before. They can't find workers. It's it's crazy. 
And even when you find a store or a restaurant open, and that's the frustrating thing, if you sit through the drive-thru in the restaurant, this probably happened to many of you, you sit through the drive-thru and you get up and you find out when you start to order, oh, well, we don't have that. Oh, no, we're, we're, we're out of that. And it's the same thing in the stores. Many of the stores, shelves are empty. It's crazy. If we get past that stuff, there's crazy things happening in politics. There's crazy things happening in education. There's crazy things going on in the culture and in society. There's violence happening in, in ways and extremes and, that we've never seen before. There's radical ideologies and immorality, things that used to be rare and used to be hidden are out in the open, they're common, and often they are even applauded. And if you're like me, there are times when I wake up in the, in the morning or I'm sitting at night and, and uh, I just think about what I've seen in the day and it's distressing. It's unsettling. Such times, such things can easily move us past that little unsettling to fear and to anxiety. And even more, such times can leave us vulnerable. Vulnerable to being misled and taken advantage of by skillful deceivers and skillful manipulators who have learned well how not to waste a good crisis <laughs> trying to get people to do what they want. That really is the problem that's in the passage before us today. That's the problem here in this little church in Thessalonica. Follow along as I begin reading Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. The first thing that Paul says to this church is he says, hey folks, don't be shaken. The folks in this church are indeed, they're shaken in mind, it says, and they are alarmed. You probably remember if you've been here in prior weeks that this church was full of young believers in Christ. Folks who hadn't been Christians for very long. Probably at most they've been believers for about a year. And... On top of that, these young Christians have been suffering persecution. They've been suffering great difficulties because of their faith. And then in the midst of their distress, someone or some ones have come to them claiming that they have a message from God and even apparently bringing along a little note that endorses what they're saying that purports to be from the Apostle Paul himself. It's a forgery. And these are lies. But these folks are manipulators capitalizing on the unsettledness and the stress of, of these folks in their suffering and in their persecution 
And they have dumped this thing upon them for whatever reason. And now this church is kind of like Elvis, all shook up. They're at their wit's end and they're fearful. They've been told they are now in the day of the Lord. Some of you may be wondering, well, what's the day of the Lord? What does that mean? And that would be a great question to ask. In the short time that the Apostle Paul was with them, he had apparently taught them extensively about this coming time, the day of the Lord, about the end times, because in his first letter, he wrote about it in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, and it's the passage that the second printed message back there is addressing. And Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Paul says, in brief, he says, you don't need anything else to be written to you because what he's saying is you are fully informed. What there is to know, you know. So you don't need anything else. And the day of the Lord, he's reminding them, is going to come like a thief. And so these folks have heard about it. They know about it from the Apostle Paul. And the day of the Lord, as if I can just say, probably in short, the term here, the day of the Lord, is referencing a future time when God is pouring out upon the earth judgment. His wrath is being poured out upon them because of sin. It's a time that is often referred to and called the tribulation. It's something that Jesus spoke about in Matthew chapter 24, where he said, For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, nor will ever be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. Nothing like that has happened in the past. It is still future There is a time coming of great distress, of great trouble on the earth as God pours out wrath upon man's sin. So as we read what Jesus said there, we can understand perhaps why these Thessalonian believers are a bit upset when someone is saying, and purportedly the Apostle Paul is saying, well guys, hey, uh, we're in the day of the Lord now. That would be a little unsettling. Also, figuring into their concern is, I believe, what we find in the in a phrase there in the first verse of Second Thessalonians chapter two that we read a few moments ago, where the apostle Paul says, speaks about the coming of the Lord. Now about now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him. He's referencing back to what he wrote about back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where Paul wrote this, and and that, by the way, is what the first of the two printed messages is about uh, back there. It's 
dealing with this passage, 1 Thessalonians 4, where Paul writes, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That passage, this passage, teaches believers in, that believers in Christ will be caught up to meet the Lord Jesus Christ in the air. It's an event that's often called the rapture, which is simply comes from the Latin raptura, which was the Latin translation of this Greek word, caught up. Rapture simply means to be caught up. There are some believers, some folks today, who say, well, I don't believe in a rapture, in the rapture of the church, and that's unfortunate because if they don't believe in the rapture of the church, they don't believe the Scripture. Because the Apostle Paul says right here very plainly in 1 Thessalonians 4, there is a rapture, a catching up of believers to meet the Lord Jesus Christ in the air. The question is not, is there a rapture? The question is, when does it happen? Does it happen at the second coming of Christ or does it happen before the second coming of Christ? And here is where many theologians will disagree with me, but I stand with our former pastors here at the chapel, with our elders, and with many other theologians in believing that this event, the rapture, the catching up of the the believers to meet the Lord in the air, happens before the second coming of Christ. Now, and it is distinct from that, Now, that raises the question, if you believe that the rapture happens before the second coming of Christ, why would Jesus come and pull the church out of the world, meet him in the air, ahead of the second coming of Jesus? Well, I believe the answer to that question, it's not found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, But I think it is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul writes to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, and he says that we are waiting for Jesus who delivers us from the wrath that is to come. What wrath is Jesus delivering us from? It's the wrath of the tribulation, the wrath that God will pour out upon the earth prior to the return of Jesus Christ, the second coming of Christ. So this rapture then precedes the tribulation that precedes the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, if we're right in that view, and you're free to disagree with me on that, I think the Scripture doesn't plainly state it. I think it infers it, again, in the way I just mentioned and in some other ways. But if we're right in that view, then these Thessalonian believers also understood that. And they believed that they would be caught up to meet the Lord in the air before this day of the Lord, the the wrath of God that's going to come in the tribulation. 
And so that explains, that, or then would explain why they're really upset, they're shook up, and they're distressed and they're afraid to hear that the day of the Lord had already come. The day of wrath has begun, and here we are, and we're not supposed to be here. We expected to be with the Lord, and here we are, and we've been under persecution for all this time we've been following Christ, and that was just the beginning because what's going to happen now, it's going to get really bad. Because if you want to know what's going on during the tribulation, well, Jesus said, if those days weren't cut short, no one would survive. It's that bad. You read Revelation beginning in chapter 6 and go on, and you begin to see the things that are happening on planet Earth during that time. So they are concerned. They're upset. They think somehow we miss Jesus gathering together, us together, and removing the church. The Apostle Paul calms him down. He says, no, don't be shaken. Don't be alarmed. Chill, guys. Relax for a minute. That's the second point that he's wanting us to... The first point is don't be shaken. Sorry. The next point is don't be deceived. Verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way. Folks, don't let anyone deceive you, he said. Don't let anyone trick you into believing wrong ideas and lies which shake your faith. You might say, well, Paul, that's a nice word. It's good to say, hey, don't be deceived. But I don't think I've ever met anyone, maybe you have, but I don't think anybody, I've met anybody who wakes up in the morning and says, I hope somebody dupes me today. I could really use a good duping, you know. Nobody wants to be deceived and duped. We don't protect ourselves from being deceived by saying, well, I don't think I'm going to get deceived today. No. We, get, we, we protect ourselves from being deceived by being prepared about what we might be deceived about. And so that's why most of us, if we have elderly family, you know, elderly parents or grandparents, we'll, we'll always be cautioning them. You know, now, be careful. Uh, if somebody calls you on the phone, uh, if you don't know who it is, you know, use caller ID. If you don't know who it is, don't answer it. Because nine times out of ten, if you don't know who it is, it's a salesperson or a con artist, right? And they can be sneaky. And don't respond to emails. That you, for people you don't know, companies you don't know, and even if you think you know the company, be careful because there are people that spoof ones. You know, we warn people like this, don't we? So Paul says, don't be deceived. The question is, how can we protect ourselves from being deceived? Well, the answer is just down in verse 5. Skip ahead. We're going to go back in a minute. But down in verse 5, Paul says, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? The antidote to being deceived is remembering. Paul says, remember what I said. Now, Paul isn't saying, remember what I said, because he's an egotist. It's not like if Pastor Keith stood up here and said, folks, the way to not be deceived is remember what I said. Because I tell you all the truth. Well, I try to tell you the truth. I'm a fallible person. The Apostle Paul was an apostle. 
as well as the other apostles. And they were the ones to whom Jesus entrusted with the message, the ones whom God prepared and, and enabled to communicate the truth to this generation of Christians. They were the foundation, Ephesians chapter 2 says, upon which the church was built, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, but it was the apostles who were those who went out and taught the truth, and it was through the apostles that we received the written Word of God, the written inerrant Word of God that has been passed to us, And what Paul was saying is, in essence, he was saying, you are grounded by immersing yourselves in the truth. The apostolic truth, which for us today is the written Word of God. So the way that you and I won't be deceived is if we study and learn God's Word well enough so that when the deceivers, when the counterfeits, when the liars show up at our door or call us on the phone or stand in a pulpit and preach, we go, wait a minute. That's not what the Word says. And Paul says, dear Thessalonians, your mistake was you listened to this voice over here and didn't remember what I said. So let's do some review. Paul says, the way to not be deceived is be grounded. Be grounded in God's Word. Because when we are, as Ephesians 4 says, it is so that when we're grounded in God's Word, we may no longer be children. Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, every wind of teaching by human cunning and by craftiness in deceitful schemes. See, there are today, just as there were then, lots of great sounding things out there promoted by very convincing people, but they are liars and they are frauds. So it's important that we study and learn God's Word then we won't be swayed and misled by them. You know, somebody once said that if you can keep your head when everyone else is losing theirs, it's a sign that you don't understand the situation. Well, in some cases that may be true. But if we can keep our heads when the world around us is losing theirs, it may well be a sign Not that we don't understand the situation, but rather that we understand and have a death grip on the Word of God. We're clinging to it. Because we're clinging to the Word of God, we don't lose our wits. We don't get shaken. We're not deceived. Well, there's a third thing that the Apostle Paul addresses here. And that is, really, it's picking up on what we just said. It's not forgetting Don't forget. But he gets specific. And as he continues, I note four things in here that we really need to remember. Four things that we need to be careful not to forget. Verse 3. And we read the first part of verse 3 earlier. 
Let's pick it up. For that day will not come, the day of the Lord, that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? See, guys, remember, don't forget. The first thing that Paul wants them to remember, to not forget, is two proofs that they were not in the tribulation. Two evidences, folks, that you're not in that day of trouble. First, he says, that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. That word rebellion literally is the apostasia, the apostasy, the forsaking or the falling away. Again, there's plenty of apostasy in our day. There was apostasy in Paul's day. There is plenty of it today. No shortage of Christians, no shortage of pastors, no shortage of churches who deny the basic tenets of the faith. They deny that Jesus Christ is God Himself, the deity of Christ. They deny that the Bible, the Scriptures, are the authoritative Word of God. They deny that Jesus is the only way to be saved. They celebrate sin and immorality that the Scriptures condemn. And on and on, there's no shortage of apostasy in our time. But the apostasy today will be culminated in and be eclipsed by the falling away. There's a definite article attached to that, the rebellion or the apostasy. It's singling out a specific time, a specific instance of apostasy. And he says that that instance, that is what begins this day of the Lord. The apostasy is connected to the next sign that he says here, the next proof that you're not in the tribulation, Thessalonians. That has to do with the man of lawlessness. The apostasy is connected to this man of lawlessness who's also called here the son of destruction, which just literally means that he is one who is destined for destruction, one who is destined for hell. It says here of this person that this person will, in verse 4, that this person will oppose God, that he will exalt himself against Every so-called God or object of worship. In other words, he exalts himself above every other God, every other, uh, not just the God in heaven, but every other religion, every other object of worship on earth. He says, I am above them. Above them I'm above them all. This man of lawlessness, it says, will seat himself in God's temple. Again, there is no one in history after this that did this. There was only another 20 years after this that the temple existed. The temple was then destroyed in 70 A.D. You know what that tells me? There's another temple coming one day. 
This man will appear there. And he will there, the text here says, he will then proclaim himself to be God and demand worship as God. You see, the great apostasy, the great rebellion, is that most all of the world, most everybody, will do what he asks. They will fall at his feet in worship. That's the great apostasy. They will worship the man of lawlessness as God. This person is no stranger to the page of Scripture. He is mentioned in the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophet Daniel mentions him the most. You can read about him in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter 11. In the book of Revelation, chapters 11 through 20, he is called the beast. You can read about him there. Most often we call him by the name that is given to him in John's first little letter. 1 John chapter 2 and 1 John chapter 4, he is called there the Antichrist. He is the personification of everything that is opposed to God and to Jesus Christ. So Paul says, Thessalonian, my dear Thessalonian brothers and sisters, you are not in the day of the Lord. Let's think about it. Think about what I've taught you. Let me ask you the question. Has the man of lawlessness appeared? Has the great apostasy happened? No. Then you're not in the day of the Lord. You're not in the tribulation. And you can almost hear the light bulbs go on as they go, oh, got it. Now, second thing that we need to remember, you're not in the tribulation. And the reason you know that is because you remember what I've taught you. Now, the second thing you need to remember about what we've learned, what I've taught you, is that God's in control. Look at verses 6 and 7. And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. He says... Next thing to remember, because as we start talking about the Antichrist, this powerful figure that is to come, this man of lawlessness, can be kind of unsettling as we talk about uh, things to come and the end times, and those things may be kind of unsettling. And he wants you to remember, God's in control. And this restrainer is not in place, not because Satan doesn't want him in place now. He's not in place now because he has been restrained. The force, the spirit of lawlessness is already at work. In other words, the, the Antichrist, this lawless one, has not come. He's not in place, but the ideology behind him The spirit behind him, the force behind him is already at work in lesser means and in other ways. It just hasn't reached its culmination. 
This powerful one has not arisen because there's a restrainer. There's a restrainer that God has put in place. And Paul says, verse 6 there, he says, and you know what is restraining him. And we go, we don't know. (laughs) Apparently Paul had talked to them and he, he told them, but he didn't write it down. And so I wish he would have because it would have saved a lot of ink on pages as theologians debate back and forth, who's the restrainer? There's lots of debate, and I can't tell you for sure. My guess is, you'll notice that the restrainer, verse 7, is a he, only he who now restrains. It's not a force, it's a person. I think the only one that fits the bill is probably the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, perhaps, at work in the church and through the church, perhaps, You're welcome to your own opinion. Do some study in the digging. But one day, verse 7 says, the restrainer will will be moved. Will be removed. God will move the restrainer out of the way. He will cease to restrain lawlessness. And then, at the very right moment, the perfect time in God's timetable, Antichrist, the personification of lawlessness, will be revealed. This could all be frightening, but should it be? No. Because believers in Christ, we know God is in control. Not only is God in control, but in verse 8, what we realize is is that Jesus wins. Verse 8, it it said, when the lawless one will be revealed, the one whom the Lord Jesus, with the breath of his mouth, he will kill him. We won't turn there, but you can go to Revelation chapter 19. You can read about it. We're there when Jesus Christ comes in His second coming. As He returns to earth in power and glory, it says as He comes, a sword goes out from His mouth. It's just the word of His mouth. And He destroys the Antichrist and His prophet. And He vanquishes His enemies. Jesus wins. Jesus wins even though, by the way, we read there in verses 9 and 10, Satan will seem to be winning. Look at verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. You see, during that time when Antichrist is here, the lawless one is here, it will seem as though he and Satan are winning the day. This lawless one rises to prominence, to power. It says here, by the activity, the work of Satan, with power and false signs and wonders, he's empowered by Satan. He works miracles. People are going to believe it. See, by the way, we still live in a day where most people don't believe there's a supernatural. And if anything supernatural happens, they go, ooh. But if you know the Word of God, we're not impressed by supernatural. Supernatural just causes us to ask questions. Who's behind the supernatural? Is it God? Or is it satanic forces of evil? 
And this lawless one, he goes on to say a fourth thing, he accomplishes wicked deception, a strong delusion over all the earth. When the lawless one rules the earth, the Antichrist, Satan will have a field day. And it will seem as though he is winning for just a little while. Martin Luther said it so vividly in that great old hymn of the faith, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, verse 2. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, but we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. Jesus wins. Don't forget that. You will not be frightened. You will not be shaken. We rest. Well, one last thing to note here. In the meantime, God is working a purpose. Even during the tribulation, God is working His purpose. Even during the deception, as the lawless one is ruling, look at verse 11. Therefore God sends on them, on who? On the world a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all who that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness at first reading it may sound like that god is deluding people but that is contrary to god's character to deceive and delude people it's not what it's saying it's saying god sends a strong delusion Here's what's happening. God is simply sending or giving to people what they want. He says here that he's talking about people who don't want the truth because they love wickedness and they love unrighteousness. As the, as Romans chapter one says that the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They don't want to know the truth. So they hide it. They push it down. That's what they want. And so what God does here is He he simply takes off the restraints and lets Satan raise up the the greatest deceiver, the greatest antichrist, the greatest counterfeit, you see, of Christ, the greatest imposter. And people swallow what he has to say. So that they believe, it says here in verse 11, what is false. It it literally is stronger than that in the Greek. It says, so that they believe the lie. Another definite article. Not just any lie, they believe the lie. We wonder, what lie? I think it's simply referring to the lie that has been on planet earth ever since the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve first sinned. It's the lie that... We can be our own gods in our own world. We can do what we want. 
We can make our own rules. We can run our own life apart from God all on our own. Thank you very much. That's the lie that the world will embrace with the Antichrist, with the man of lawlessness. It's the lie that will rule the world until Jesus returns to the earth and touches down at the second coming. The Mount of Olives is split in two. He vanquishes his enemies and exposes the lie for what it is. Because there is a God who made us. And we are not Him. The good news, by the way, here is that there is salvation for any who will turn to Christ. He will, it says here, He will condemn all who did not believe the truth. But those who believe who receive Jesus Christ as their Savior are saved. That's the truth. This world is a mess. It's going to get a lot worse. And I think Scripture could not be more plain. It's going to get eventually, in this time of trouble, downright awful. But in the midst of everything, you and I can have peace rather than fear. Because our hope is not in politics, it's not in some human leader, it's not in sociology, it's not in psychology, it's not in science. Our hope is sure and certain. We have a Savior who loves us, who rescues us from sin and is coming for us. And He wins. Let's pray. Father, we've just scratched the surface of these things. We could spend weeks and weeks digging into these passages. But the message here for us this morning is quite plain. Earth as we know it, this world as we know it, has, this life as we know it, I suppose I should say, has an expiration date on it, as well as this earth. Right now, sin rules the day in a limited way. When the restraints are off, it's going to rule this world in a very open and almost complete way. Father, we need not fear. For you've told us, you've given us a little window into some of what is ahead. There's so much we don't know. We don't need to know all the details. What we need to know is there's a Savior, Jesus. And we need to trust Him as our Savior. And then we can rest in Him, knowing He's got the future in His hands. And that one day we will be with Him forever and ever and ever. So in the meantime, may these realities give us peace in the midst of all the chaos of our day. May it also give us uh, an impetus to be busy about the work He left us to do, the mission of the Gospel. And may we love You with all that we are and all that we have because You have provided for us a spectacular destiny. These things we pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.